Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rhema.org.au. Father, we honor you, we glorify you. This morning, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for us upon the cross and took our sins and our diseases upon your own self. And Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We acknowledge your presence in our midst, and I ask you to let your word go forth with power. Let it penetrate our hearts, impart faith into our hearts. And Lord, I ask you that we may bear much fruit for your glory, so that you be glorified in our lives and through us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Praise God. Let's go to John chapter 12. And uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 12. And am I speaking too fast for you? I'm okay. Okay, Jan, John chapter 12, verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same therefore came to Philip, which was a bedside of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip to tell Jesus. So, there were Greeks, people from Greece, who had come to worship at the feast. And of course, they had heard about Jesus. Jesus was quite famous because of all the things he did. So they found one of the disciples of Jesus, Philip, and they said, Philip, uh, excuse me, but we would like to see Jesus. And uh, so Philip went to Andrew and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came together uh, to, to tell Jesus that there's these Greeks who want to see you. And this is what Jesus said. In response, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, 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 I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Let's pause here a while. So here's these Greeks, they want to see Jesus, and the response of Jesus, the first thing he said, he said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he begins to talk about death. You know, he, he, he gives this speech about death. And he seemed to be in a mood where, uh, uh, you know, normally when people would come to see Jesus, he would talk to them about eternal life. You know, he who cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And talks about uh, uh, as the Father has life, so has the Son life in himself. And I come to you that you may have life and have it more abundantly. You know, that's the way Jesus normally spoke. But now he's talking about death. His whole thing, he, everything he says is about death. And um, he seemed to be in, in this, in this uh, there seemed to be uh, a cloud over him. In this, and, and you wonder, why is he talking like this? Well, the first thing is that uh, this was uh, Jesus... You know, he had been preaching for three and a half years. For three and a half years, he had been here preaching, he had been teaching, he had been healing the sick, he had been casting out demons. And now he was nearing the end of his 
earthly ministry and he was approaching the time when he knew that he would go to the cross and die for our sins. And, and he knew that that was the hour for which he had come to this world because, he, you know, he was a... And he said, Father, you know, what shall I do? Shall I ask the Father to deliver me from this hour? He said, no, this is the reason, the very reason I came to this world was for this hour. So Jesus was kind of mulling over this whole situation because now is the end of the road and he's soon going to go to Calvary and what it would cost him. I mean, what it would cost him to die upon the cross and take our sins. And, and we saw that. I mean, the greatest thing, the greatest price he paid was uh, to be separated from the Father. Because, uh, you know, that's, that, that was one thing he couldn't bear. Uh, he had always had perfect fellowship with the Father from before the beginning of eternity. He always had fellowship with the Father. And, uh, and he says, that, you know, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things. That's the kind of fellowship he had with the Father. And now he knew that when he would hang upon the cross and our sins would be put upon him, he would be separated from the Father. And, uh, and the Father, uh, he would become a curse because, uh, you know, Galatians 3, it says that Jesus became a curse for us and that he'd be, he'd be rejected by the Father. That's the price he would have to pay. And then, and we saw that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, he said, uh, you know, he prayed for that specific thing. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by, but nevertheless, not mine, but your will be done. And that cup of sin our sins, you know, he, he, he would bear that upon his own self and the price for that, he would become a curse, he'd be rejected by the Father. And, but, but he, that was his instinct of self-preservation. But his love for us as sinners was greater than his love for himself. That's why he said, but Father, you know, nevertheless, not mine, but your will be done. And he decided to pay that horrific price. And then, uh, uh, you know, and, and then when he was on the cross, we know that when he bore the sins of mankind, as he hung upon the cross, the Father rejected him. God turned his face away from him. And he said, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus was going into that situation when he would experience that rejection, that separation, and so, you know, that's why he was in that mode because he realized what it would cost him to bear upon his own self the sins of all mankind. So that's why, you know, he's talking about death. He seems to be, there seems to be this cloud hanging over him. So the first thing he says, uh, he says, the Son of Man will be glorified. But then the first thing he says, uh, and he's talking in different levels. At the first level, he's talking about his own death. The next level he's talking about us and about his own self. He says that except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it will bear much fruit. In other words, if, a, if you take a grain of wheat and you keep it as it is, it stays as it is. But if it dies and is buried on the ground, only then will it bear much fruit. So he was talking about himself that he had to die in order to multiply himself and to become much fruit. And we are worshiping God today, uh, this morning, and we can say we are saved because of the price that Jesus paid. And then the second thing, he begins to talk about us, about then he, and that's when he says that if any, man in, if, if any man loves his life, he will lose it. But if you despise and hate your life, you will find it to life eternal. 
So he's talking about separation from earthly things, separation from, you know, from, from the world and embracing the eternal. If you love your life on this earth, he said you're going to lose it. And it's true because no, no matter how successful, how well you get and you, know, you love this world and you love your life and the things of this earth, there will come a day when you lose it. But if you hold on to the eternal, you will find life. And then, then, he, then he's referring, I believe he's referring to those Greeks who wanted to see him. He said, if any man will serve me, let him follow me. In other words, you want to see me? You want to be with me? Come go with me where I'm going because I'm about to go to the cross. You want to, you want to live with me? You have to die with me first. You know? And that's the cost of discipleship. And uh, I remember when I, I first came to Jesus, you know, I was a Muslim and I had never seen a Bible. I didn't know anything about Jesus. And, uh, uh, and I met this man who told me about Jesus Christ. And I remember I, I prayed and I received Jesus Christ. And I immediately felt how, I felt how my burdens had been lifted away. And for the first time in my life, I had, I had peace. And, uh, but three days later, I met this young man. And I told him I had given my life to Jesus. And he said, Oh, so you have given your life to Jesus? I said, yes. He said, do you know the cost? Uh, I'm sorry, the conditions for following Jesus. I said, I didn't know there were conditions. He says, there are. And he, he asked me to sit down next to him. Um, you know, I, I remember it was in the YMCA building. I sat next to him and, and he pulled out a Bible from his little shoulder bag. And, uh, and he said, this is a Bible. And uh, I had never seen a Bible before. That was the first time in my life I'd ever seen a Bible. And he wanted me to hold it. And I was so afraid because we as Muslims, we had the highest respect for holy books. And my hands were unwashed. And I said, sir, my hands are unwashed. He said, no, it's okay. It's all right. So I took the book. Then he opened the book. And that was the first time I was ever looking at the inside of a Bible. And uh, he put his finger on a verse. And he asked me to read it. And this is what it said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. And so he made me read that thrice. And he said, do you understand the conditions for following Jesus? I said, well, it says I have to deny myself. Then he says, you know what it means to take up the cross? Um, I said, no, sir. He said, when Jesus took up the cross, that was when he was going to the place he were, where he was going to die. And he says, here Jesus expects us to take up our cross every day and be willing to die for him. And I'll never forget the words, what he said after that. He said, unless you're ready to, uh, to give, on, you know, give your life and uh, you are not fit to live for him. Unless you're ready to die for him, you're not fit to live for him. Are you willing to die for Jesus? And I told him, I, I told him this, I said, Sir, this is December 1975. December 1971, I went to war. I was only 17 years old. And I was a Muslim, and, and the president, president I, was this, I said, I was in this city, and the president came on the radio, and he said, this is jihad. And I said that uh, uh, Muslims, they normally bury their dead, not in coffins, but in shrouds, in white sheets. I said that, and when a soldier goes to war, when a Muslim soldier goes into jihad, he carries his own burial shroud with him in his backpack. And to show that he really means business, that he wants to die, uh, he, what we, he said that they, they, they tear off a strip of, uh, uh, you know, of that uh, shroud, that, 
you know, from the top end about this wide, two inches wide, and then what you do, you tie it around your forehead and you wear a steel helmet on top of it. So those who see that, they know that you're ready to die and they'll, they'll send you to do the most dangerous things. I said I was 17 years old, suicidal, nothing to live for. I was ready to die. I wore that thing on my forehead. I went to war. But now I realize that what I lived for, what I was ready to give my life for, was worth nothing. But I have now received Jesus. I have received eternal life. And if God wants my life, I'm ready to give my life. So, you know, so uh, I learned that those were the conditions of discipleship. You know, uh, I, wish, I wish it was preached more today about, <laughs> uh, lay, you know, laying down your life to follow Jesus. So, so that's what Jesus is talking about, his death, his dying on the cross. And he's talking about us laying down our lives in order to follow him. So, uh, you know, but he's, he's talking about death. And then, then he, says, uh, he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knew, as I said, what it would cost him to die on the cross for us. He said, no, because I have come to the world for this hour. This is the very reason I came to the world. And then he says, Father, glorify thy name. Now he begins by saying in verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So now he's saying, Father, glorify thy name. And the Father said, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Now, this is very interesting because when you, when you and I, well, at least in my case, when I think of the glory of God, I think of several things. The first thing I think of is the resurrection of Jesus because the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead with the, you know, with the glory of God, right? Jesus was raised up by the glory of God. That's the first thing. And the second thing I think of is every time I've heard of the glory of God revealed, it's always, uh, um, you know, I remember two times I have seen this. It happened to me on twi twice, once in Poland and once in Argentina. I've seen people, their faces literally glowing with the glory of God. It's almost like they had a light bulb inside them that was glowing. You know, I've seen faces glow. I've seen this only twice in my uh, 42 years of ministry, but, but I have seen it, you know. And so I think of that as the glory of God. Then I think of what people have said to me uh, about the glory of God. Sometimes they have seen a light uh, manifested in a meeting or they have seen a cloud or something of that sort. You, you, you think of the glory of God as being light, as being brightness or, 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 or brightness or the, or the power of God. But here Jesus is referring to his death as being a revelation of the glory of God. He said, Father, glorify thy name. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And what he's talking about is actually, he's talking about the time when they would take his clothes off and they would whip him and whip him and whip him with a whip made of nine belts of leather with pieces of metal and bone and, and, and pieces of flesh and skin would be torn off his back and he would be bleeding from his back. Then they would, then they would beat him up with sticks and Isaiah uh, 52, the last verse says that his, figs, his face was disfigured beyond recognition. Then they would spit upon him and mock him and curse him and they would crown him with thorns and covered with his own blood, covered with the spit of sinners, with people blaspheming him and 
cursing him. He would carry that cross across town to Calvary where they would nail him to the cross and he would hang upon that cross in such pain for nine hours. Uh, rejected by man his own disciples would run away from there rejected by God taking our sins upon himself even the sun wouldn't shine on him and he would say my father my father why have you forsaken me and then he would die and the soldiers would take soldier would take a spear and and shove it up his side and water and blood would flow from there and he calls that as being glorious He's talking about that painful death, the rejection, the shame of that as being glorious. Why? And I saw in the Bible, the death of Jesus upon the cross was glorious because of what happened when he died. Of what he accomplished in his death, what he did when he died. And so there are five reasons why the cross of Jesus is so glorious. And the first one of this, of these we see in verse 31 in the same chapter in John chapter 12. It says, now is the judgment of this world. This is the first reason why the cross of Jesus was so glorious. It is because when Jesus was upon the cross, God judged the world for its sins. When Jesus was upon the cross, God put all the sins of all mankind upon Jesus. From the first human being who walked on this earth to the last human being who will ever walk on this earth. God took all their sins and, their, and that's their hidden secret sins, their open sins, their small sins, their big sins. There are certain sins, we don't think much of them. We read about them in the paper and, and we don't think that, okay, what he, he did was wrong, but it's okay, you know. But then there are other sins, like huge, big things. We read about that kid in Florida who, oh, who went and killed 17 of his classmates at school. Those things. We read about that... Uh, uh, medical doctor of the U.S. gymnastics team who molested 200 young girls. Horrific. And then, and, and you know, when he was being tried, the, the trial went on for months and months, and the judge just wanted, you know, people to see the magnitude of his crime. So all the, about 150 or 200 girls came up and testified against them, and some of them stood in court and screamed and said to him, we, may you rot in hell. And I realized, you know, I thought of that, sure, surely his sins were great, but even all his sins were put upon the cross. Put upon the cross. Mass murderers, people who have done horrible things. You know, we tend to look at ourselves as good people and people who do worse things as, uh, than us as bad people but the Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and Jesus took all the sins of all mankind no matter what is in our past Jesus took it all upon his own self 
And some of us, we still struggle with our past because we, we have done some things in the past that we think was, are so bad that we have a hard time believing that God could even forgive those. It's how things we have grown up with. I remember my, uh, my, my wife had an aunt who, 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 you know, who gave birth to a child when she was 17 years old. She was not married and gave birth to a baby when she was 17 years old and, 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 and her whole life she lived under that. She died at almost 90 years of age. Her whole, I mean, she loved Jesus, went to church and believed her sins were forgiven, but she believed that that particular sin could never be forgiven. She lived under the cloud of that. I mean, she, I, she would ask me to pray for her for different things, and I would pray for her. And when I'd finished praying, she would always say, do you think Jesus will hear me? I said, auntie, yes. And she would say, you don't know what I have done. She lived with that guilt until she died. But you see, the thing is that Jesus has taken all our sins. And so because of that, we don't live in an era of judgment, but we live in an era of mercy. Whenever something bad happens somewhere in the world, there is always some so-called charismatic prophet who comes with a prophesy, oh, God is judging that city, and God is judging those people, and God is judging here and there. You know, God didn't give the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of prophecy to the church for us to use that to judge other people. There was a judgment when Jesus was judged for the sins of this world and there will come a final judgment. The Bible says there will be the judgment of the great white throne but from the time Jesus died until that day we live in the time of the gospel when God has given the church the mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is our calling, that is our mandate to tell people to be reconciled to God. The mandate we have been given is to preach the gospel just because we are living in the era of forgiveness and mercy and the call that goes out is come now and let us reason together though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow that is the time we are living in amen, amen. now is the judgment of this world God has already judged the sins of all mankind in Jesus Christ the second is now in the same verse, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Which means that when Jesus was upon the cross, he defeated the devil once and for all. It says here in Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, the word spoiled means disarm, he made a show of them openly, triumphing them over in it. And the it being referred to here is the cross. The Bible says that upon the cross, Jesus triumphed over the principalities and the powers of the air, and he, he totally disarmed them, and he won a total and decisive victory over Satan. And that is why one of the things in our mandate is, it says, in my name you shall cast out demons. 
And I've done that many, many times, not because I like it, not because I don't go around chasing demons, but, you know, some of you may laugh, you know, because you've never seen a demon-possessed person in, you know, in Australia. But you go to India, you go to Africa, beloved, you will see demon-possessed people. I've seen some things that'll curl your hair if it's straight and uncurl it if it's curly. Those things are real. But Jesus said, in my name you shall cast out demons. That is a part and parcel of the Great Commission. In my name, you know, you, say, you shall lay your hands upon the sick, but you shall also cast out demons. We have been given the right and authority to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And I can tell you many, many stories of things like this, but, but I won't because I, I, can, I can go into some stories. But, 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 the, but the point is that the devil has been soundly and decisively defeated by Jesus once and for all upon the cross. And the only name that the devil fears is the name of Jesus. That's the only name that the devil fears is the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The third reason the cross of Jesus is so glorious is because it says in Colossians 2 verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What he's talking about is the law of Moses, that upon the cross, Jesus, you know, when he walked on this earth, he fulfilled the law of Moses, and upon the cross, he took the law of Moses, and he nailed it to the cross. He took it out of our way so that we are no longer beholden to the law of Moses. We don't have to keep the law of Moses for our salvation or to be sanctified. Our salvation comes through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And nothing else, only the blood of Jesus. And our sanctification comes as a result of the work of the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit working together in our lives. Amen. If you want to be sanctified, you want to, you want to walk with God, you better live a life in the Word of God and live a life in the Holy Spirit. You know, be, be, live in the Word of God and live a life of prayer, praying in the Holy Ghost. If you do these things, God will continue to do His work in your life. Amen. So those are the things. Now, that is why, we, you know, we should be very careful about playing around with the law. Law of Moses. Now, I'm saying this, I know this is not very popular, and if I step on your toes, it's your fault, you got your toes in the wrong place, you know. But, but, but I go to churches, and, you know, and people like to do this, some of this Old Testament stuff, you know, like blowing off shofar, wearing these, these Levite robes. Don't mess with those things, because all those things come from the law. And Paul said very clearly that if you, if you like to like these things, you become beholden to the whole law. You, you, we don't have the right to pick and choose. You know, we sometimes tend to romanticize certain aspects of the law and certain feasts. No, you, you don't have the right to do that. It's either all or nothing. If you want to go into the law of Moses, the Bible says, you know, Jesus said, he said, no, sorry, Paul said that you're fallen from grace. Two things in Galatians, he says, if you go into the law of Moses, you're falling from grace. Then he says, Christ is of no effect for you. 
And so you're in the law. And then once you're in the law, you're beholden to the whole law. And the law says that if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. So your goose is cooked from that point onwards. <laughs> right? And the second thing, you, when you break the law, you come under the curse of the law. And Deuteronomy 28 tells us the curse of the law is poverty, disease, and death. So you don't, it's better to stay with Jesus and, and, and put that shofar in the waste paper basket where it belongs, okay? I mean, get rid of that shofar and use that robe as a tablecloth if you want to. But don't, but, but don't, don't, you know, just, just don't go into those things. Don't, don't mess with the law. You, are you, you understand what I'm saying? But walk with Jesus and, 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 and walk in liberty. The Bible says, you know, Paul said, in freedom Christ has set us free. Do not be entangled again uh, in, you know, in, the, in the yoke of bondage. Because Jesus took the law of Moses and nailed it to the cross. Now, but what about the law? It's still holy. It's still the law of God. But it plays a passive role in our life in the sense that it is still our frame of reference which shows us the righteousness and the holiness of God. If you have any questions about what is permissible, what is not permissible, what is right or wrong, you know, in the eyes of God, you can go and look at the law as a reference point. But that doesn't, that should never become a part of your practice or your life. Shouldn't. Is dangerous, all right? So that's the third reason the, the, the cross was so glorious was because upon the cross, Jesus took away the law. Now, the fourth reason the cross is glorious is because of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Surely he has borne our diseases and carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we were healed. Amen. Healing is a part of the atonement and it is the right of every child of God. It is a right and a privilege we all have. God put our physical diseases upon Jesus Christ and healing is the children's bread. Jesus said healing is the children's bread. That is our bread and butter. Healing belongs to us. Physical healing belongs to you and me. Never accept a disease because you were born with it. Amen. Or because it runs in the family. You know, some people say, Oh, you know, all my uncles died of this disease. My father, my mother died of this disease. And then you live in this fear that you're going to die of it too. No. That curse has been broken at Calvary. It doesn't matter what you were born with. And sometimes we make the mistake, if we have had a medical condition for a long enough time, we, we, we kind of stopped believing God for it because we felt like we believed God for it, confessed and nothing has happened. Then we kind of focus on our, fa our faith on, on other areas and, we, uh, and when we succeed, we do well in other areas, but we ignore this area and we live with it until we die. But you shouldn't do that. You should fight disease. Now, we live in a time when medical science is so advanced that, that uh, you know, there's medication that can keep you alive until, you know, even with a condition. But in third world countries, people don't have that privilege. They don't have such medication. If they get sick, then they know they're going to die. And so they have to believe God. That's maybe one of the reasons people in those countries experience many miracles. We don't, because they have blessed assurance. We have blessed insurance, you know. <laughs> you understand where I'm coming from? 
and and so so you you know you should fight you know like you fight sin in your life you should fight disease you know, what if I die? Well, I tell you what, it's better to die believing God than to die in unbelief. You should never capitulate to disease. But you should take care of your body. Your body is a temple of God. Amen? Sometimes, let me tell you, sometimes the cure is not in prayer and in faith. It is just living right and eating right. Hello? If you eat right and you live right, You'll have a healthier body. Now, if you if you if, if you if you if you don't eat right, you don't live right, and then you are praying and believing God. Don't work that way. You you live right, you eat right, and then you believe God. Do all things in moderation. You'll be okay. Amen. But the bottom line is that Jesus bore our diseases and carried our pains and the Bible says with his stripes doesn't say we will be healed we are healed we have been healed it has been done it belongs to you it was fulfilled upon the cross and it is written on your account you have to put your signature under the check and take it out because it is in your account you don't have to beg God to heal you or ask him it already belongs to you because the Bible says with his stripes we have been healed we were healed. Amen. Boy, I'm preaching good this morning, Tony. Man, okay. I don't know about you, but I'm getting blessed, you know. And the fifth reason why the cross is so glorious. It says here, in verse number 31, And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. All men. You know, it's, it's amazing that the cross of Jesus has such an appeal that it draws people of all races, of all nationalities to Jesus. Because when you preach the cross of Jesus, it, you know, God, the Holy Spirit does his, his work in the lives of people. Sometimes there's this temptation that, you know, people have to understand everything. The intellectual person has to understand everything. I've been a Christian for 43 years, I still don't understand everything. If you ask me, why did you give your life to Jesus? Risking your life, you were a Muslim. I spent a year, almost a year in prison. I was going to be executed. Why was I, I such a fool that I decided to follow Jesus? I don't know. I can just say when that guy on the street, he shared Christ with me, something just got me. And when something gets you, it gets you. That's all, the only thing I can explain. Some people have got such, they're so intelligent. They're so, you know, two and two have to make four. They don't always make four. I mean, you're talking about a God who we have never seen. We see the evidence of his presence in people's lives. But you cannot analyze him in a laboratory. You, you cannot, you know, there's some certain things you, you know, you, you just cannot figure out. But you know, it's work in your life and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that, because, you see, in the Old Testament, under the law, Jesus said, salvation is for the Jews. Only the Jews could come to a place where they could have a relationship with God. And if you were like me, like an Arab guy, forget it. <laughs> now, some of you are laughing, you white people, your ancestors were barbarians. Crawling around under 
trees like Nebuchadnezzar when he was demon-possessed, you know, in Europe. You know, white people like to look at the rest of us and say, <laughs> you know, you guys weren't that sophisticated. Your ancestors were barbarians. You were also far. Black people, your ancestors came from Africa. You were so far that until the 1800s, and even, even, I mean, in South Africa, until 20 years ago, people didn't believe that black people could be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? Pe people, you know, but I mean, just so think of it that we were outsiders. You know, I mean, the, uh, the Chinese, you were so far from, from everyone, nobody knew you existed, you know? <laughs> so you got the Chinese, you know, got the Oriental people, the white people, and people from Fiji. Fiji, where is Fiji? Most people still don't know where it is. They know it's somewhere out there. They have got a good rugby team, but they're nobody, you know? But the thing is that the Bible says that, you know, in the Old Testament, it was only the Jews. It was only the Jews. But now, the Bible says through the that we who were far we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus when people hear the gospel it resonates with them and the Holy Spirit draws them and so I remember when I was in North India I had this huge crowd that came and there were animists and they were Muslim we were close to Himalayas we had like tens of thousands of people and I said Lord uh, how do I preach to people who have never e I'm in an area where people have never even heard the name of Jesus what do you connect with what do you refer to and the Holy Spirit said to me, just preach the cross, because if you preach the cross, I can do something with it. If you try to, you know, do your own thing, there's nothing I can latch on to, nothing. So I got up and I began to talk about sin and salvation, about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I don't understand, but the Holy Spirit did His work, and people came running to get saved. That's why Jesus said, when I be lifted up, that means when he was crucified, he exercises his... Is that beeper telling me to... <laughs> well, you, you tell that beeper to shut up, okay? <laughs> I'm just getting warmed up, you know. <laughs> he said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Hindus, Muslims, Chinese, Buddhists, Africans, no matter who they are, they all come. Hallelujah. So that's why the cross of Jesus is so glorious. Now, let me tell you something about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, you know, the whole thing about Jesus, it happened in Israel and then it spread to Asia, which is now Turkey. You know, the Bible talks about Asia. It's actually Asia Minor, which was Turkey, where which is now known as Syria. That's where everything... And then Paul made his missionary trips. And the first missionary trip he made was to Greece. That was... That was and the first time he ever preached in Europe was in, on a place in Athens. I don't know if you've ever been to Athens, but in Athens you have the... Uh, you've got the Parthenon, and on the, on the Parthenon you've got a building called the Acropolis, the old temple. And if you, if you visit the Acropolis, you just walk down, just... 50 meters, and then you have a place called Mars Hill. It's not really a hill, it's an outcropping of rock, and he, uh, and if you preach on Mars Hill, that's where Paul first preached on the European continent. He, he spoke from Mars Hill. And then from, you look down, 
from Mars Hill, the valley below. You see those places, and they'll point it out to you. This is where Paul sat and debated with the philosophers. And that's interesting because Paul was a theologian, but he was also a highly intellectual man. I mean, he was not a dummy. You know, he could, he could debate, discuss philosophy with the most intelligent philosophers of his day. So Greek was the hotbed of wisdom in philosophy, and the Greeks appreciated that. They wanted wisdom. Everything has to be discussed on the uh, on, on a basis of philosophy. So he came there and he tried to engage them. His tactic was to engage them in philosophy, in philosophical discussions, and present the concept of Christianity as a philosophy, and see if you could win them over. But he, it was a disappointment because he couldn't accomplish anything. And so he went away from there very disappointed, and he went to the next biggest town, which was the town of Corinth. When he came to Corinth, he had learned from his mistake in Athens. He said, I'm not going to do my philosophical thing here, but I'm going to preach Christ crucified. That is why he, they, you, in the New Testament, there is no letter to the church in Athens. Because there was nothing. He, he barely accomplished anything there. There was no church in Athens. There's no, that's why there were no letters to the church in Athens. But then he came to Corinth. And in Corinth, he, uh, he established a church which became a very powerful church. And two of the longest letters in the New Testament, he wrote to the church in Corinth. Right? And I'm going to read to you certain verses from the letters he wrote to the Corinthians. And once you understand this background that I just told you, you will understand where he's coming from. We have read these words many times, but please bear with me and listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Does it make sense to you why he wrote these words? What he's saying was that I was in Athens. I did that thing. It didn't work. So when I came to you, I determined not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 24, he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew no, not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hallelujah. At the end of the day, that's where he stood, by the cross. He preached the cross. And this is a word for us today because we are living in an age when much 
many people in the church, they want to retool the gospel to make it more palatable for ordinary people by taking away certain things from the gospel that the thing might offend people. You understand what I'm saying? Like, for example, speaking in tongues. You know that, I have pastors tell me I don't like people speaking in tongues in our services because it scares people off. What is your experience? I say, well, let me tell you a story. Many, many years ago I was in Sweden. And I have this habit when I, you know, I, I speak Swedish, I preach, preach in Swedish. When people come for prayer, I speak in tongues. Of course, I'm Pentecostal, I speak in tongues. That's my bread and butter. And I preach in Swedish and I preach in English. And there was this family that came forward to get saved and I prayed for them and the next day they wanted to see me. And they wanted to ask me. They said, we are from Yugoslavia. Where did you learn to speak such beautiful Serbo-Croatian? I said, I've never heard Serbo-Croatian in my life. I don't know what it even sounds like. They said, yeah, but you spoke it yesterday in the meeting. I said, when? And the wife said, well, you came to me and you prayed for me in beautiful, perfect Serbo-Croatian. Not only that, you prayed for me by my name. You didn't even know me. I didn't even tell you what my needs were. Then you prayed for me in English and prayed in Swedish. Then he went to my husband and did the same thing. The whole family received Jesus and their son became a pastor. So, I don't know what your experience is, but that is my experience. And over the years people have told me, you've preached in Swahili, you've, you've prayed in Swahili, you've prayed in Finnish, and you've prayed in diff different languages and every time that's happened I haven't known that I'm speaking in a foreign language but the thing is that the Holy Ghost knows so I don't want to I never I would never want to shut the door to him that's why I preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and be faithful to the Bible and preach it according to the book and then watch what God does because that's where God does miracles you cannot have Pentecost and miracles without the blood you cannot have a sanitized gospel where you take away those things that you think offend people and then at the same time you want to see miracles, you want to see the power of God, you want to see, do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to see people really, really, really saved, if you want to see people's lives really changed, we have to stay faithful to what the book says. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not ashamed of the cross. Because it was on that cross, Jesus paid the price for us. Hallelujah. Paul says, I'm not. That's why he, he says, when I determined, when I came to you, I determined I would know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's the, that's the essence of my message. And really, if you want to walk in victory, that you must keep that as the essence, as the focus of your life. Never go away from the cross. Never stray so far from the cross. If you're in the ministry, never go so far from the cross that you realize, oops, I'm not preaching the cross anymore. That's the essence. And even in your life, stay close to those things. And I want to finish with this verse. And this is the end, I promise you. Galatians 6:14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I into, unto the world. What Paul was saying is that through the cross of Jesus, his relationship with the world had ended. 
The world is dead for me. There's nothing in the world that attracts me. And the world has no hold on me. You know, I've thought of it many times. I suddenly realized one day, there's nothing in this world I can take with me. These things mean nothing. You know, some years ago, <laughs> I got from an anonymous person I still don't know. I got a $10,000 Rolex watch. I said, why would anyone give me a $10,000 Rolex watch? I never prayed for it. I never asked God for it. And so I wore it for a week just to see how it feels. Because some of these prosperity preachers talk about their Rolexes. I thought, it must be, there must be a special anointing with it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to wear it and see how it felt. I wore it for a week and my wife made fun of me through the whole week. And she said, honey, how does it feel? I said, no, it says the same thing as my $150 citizen. Speaks exactly the same thing. Tells me exactly the same time. I said, but the other thing is the only thing I'm afraid I might lose it or it might get stolen. But I said, these things mean nothing to me because I cannot take it with me. I'm just passing through. There are things I cannot take with me, but there are things I can take with me. You know what I can take with me? In the first service, there was an older gentleman who came to receive Jesus. I can take, I'm taking him with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? People I lead to Jesus are going with me. But there's nothing else I can take with me. So, so that's why there's nothing in the world that attracts me. So I'm dead to the world and the world is dead to me. Paul says I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. That's the only thing that matters. So the, then out of that comes this thing called separation. Where the word of God says in Corinthians it says that that come out of the world and be separate from them. Then I will be your father and you will be my children. Sometimes we think that just because you say, oh, I, I, I am saved, I received Jesus, so by default you are a child of God and you can say God is your father, you're a child of God. It's not necessarily true. If you really, really, really want to be a child of God, you really, really, really want to walk in sonship and walk in the power and the authority and the blessings of sonship, God is saying to you, come out from among them. Separate yourself from the world. And I'm saying this because in the church today, the, there's too much of worldliness. There's a spirit of worldliness in the church. In our, in our desire to be relevant, we have become worldly. Sometimes we don't know what is worldly and what is not worldly because worldliness has become such a part of the culture of the church and we think it's okay, but it's not okay. Because that's not where the grace and the power and the anointing of God are found. The power and the anointing of God are found in separation. Come out from among them. Then you will see what I can do, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. While your heads are bowed, I just want to ask you one question. Since I don't know you, you people, but God knows you and God knows your heart. If there's Anybody here, you say, Pastor Christopher, I need to get right with God. If there's anyone here, you need to make things right with God. You need to give your life to Jesus. Then you could just, uh, just show me your hand so I know who you are. That for me is the most important thing because I don't want you to lay on your bed tonight and say to yourself, that man stood there and poured his heart out and I just sat there because of my pride. 
or because of what I thought people would think of me. But this is your opportunity. If there's anybody here who needs to give his life to Jesus, just let me see your hand. Anybody else? God bless you, miss. Anybody else? This is your opportunity. Please don't let anything hold you back. God bless you, madam. If you need to get right with God, this is your opportunity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? Right there. Right there. God bless you. Now, those of you who put your hand up, could you please come and join me in the front? I don't want to make a spectacle of you. But the reason I ask Jesus, I ask people to make this walk because Jesus made that walk when he carried the cross. Come stand here and face me. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Come and join me here. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. You did the right thing. Takes a lot of guts. You did the right thing. Anybody else? If you are sitting there and you are saying that I shouldn't be sitting down but I should be joining these four people here. Anybody else? This is your opportunity. Annalisa, could you come to the lady with the baby? Can you go and pray with her by herself? I don't want to bring her up here, leave the baby. She has that pram. Could pray with her. Anybody else? Anybody else? This is your chance. This is your opportunity. Wait a few more seconds. Ask yourself this question. If I was to die, am I going to heaven or to hell? If you say, Pastor, I don't know. But I need to get right with God. This is your opportunity. Anybody else? Just come and join us. Pastor Tony, I want you to lead in the sinner's prayer because you're the pastor here. God bless you, madam. God bless you. Pastor Tony, would you lead them in prayer? Yeah, you can, if you want to close your eyes and we're just going to pray together, you can concentrate by closing your eyes and we'll pray this together. And the whole, we can all do it together, congregation. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. You took my sin. You went to hell for me. And you were raised for me. For me. Jesus, I declare you are Lord. You're welcome in my heart. I believe God raised you from the dead. Thank you that you first loved me. And I love you because you love me. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray for each one of these precious people. Don't let even one fall by the wayside, but let each one be raised up on the last day. We thank you. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We're always encouraged to hear how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story you would like to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know and send us an email at church at if you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brandon
www.org.au.